Thank you for getting up this morning, making your way here. It's going to take me a few minutes to get this tiny little pulpit ready. Actually, I need two of these. Uh, I have... uh, I have a retro approach. I don't use iPads to preach from. They scare me to death uh, because if something happens, I won't know what to do standing on my feet. But if I, if, I, if I lose track of something here on paper, I've got it. I can find it. <laughs> That's just a, a comment on what it's like to be the son of life. And I think I ought to say something also. Uh, On those times I'm asked to speak, I'm not going through a book right now of study. Now, rest assured, this is a little awkward for me because that's what I've done for, well, off and on over 54 years. And I think that my, my thinking is, importance of, I just read the passage this morning, of giving us an experience in the whole counsel of God, something from every part of the scriptures, just to see the, the big picture. At least that's the way I'm thinking at the moment. I could change on that within a week or so, but that's the way I'm thinking right now. And we're going to be in Second Peter this morning. And you'll need to turn there, and I'm going to incorporate the uh, reading of the scripture. Uh, I think this might uh, serve us be a little more convenient because as I go to read from Second Peter, I'm going to do it in a little different kind of way, and I'll let you know about that. I want us to pray before we go into the scriptures, and you have the a very bare outline that I've given to go in the bulletin, though I can assure you there will be more that will come with that. But I want us to pray together. Let's uh, be sure we pray, I will pray for Hal and Carol Rudy. Uh, Hal had a stroke this week. It's a STEM stroke. And uh, he's very weak. He's at this present time at Piedmont Fayette Hospital. Uh, Beth and I were with him for a short time yesterday afternoon. So there is some um, question about will there be a transition to some kind of a rehab place for stroke patients. And uh, let me tell you this about some of you who are new to Baraka. Uh, Hal served faithfully in the office for like 27 years, handling the books. And it's one of those kind of jobs that it's unseen and you don't immediately recognize it, but when it's not done, you notice it (laughs) right away. And uh, he was very diligent with that for all all those years. Uh, His eyes got increasingly bad. He's just legally blind. And, but he did such a faithful, steady, informed job with that uh, here at Baraka. And he, and he was, uh, Al was, this is not a eulogy for Al, but I'm, I just want you to know who, who he is. And those may not have any idea, since he's been shut in, he and Carol, since before COVID, and they've not been able to be here. Uh, 
uh, Hausman was, was had a significant part in our missions program. He he was in connection. He was a pilot for Eastern, and he was one of those kind of Christian pilots who used his flight, his his layovers, or you know wherever he was, he was always active for the gospel's sake and met missionaries and and uh, national believers and and brought them uh, to Baraka in one way or another. And he was on the missions committee for some years. So um, Hal and Carol were never sidelined people. They were very much involved, but uh, Hal is 88 years of age now and Carol's just a little bit behind him. And so if they're at that time of life where uh, it's God's asking them to uh, go through some special difficulties, he has a different bridge for every one of us, crossing the bridge into the presence of Christ. And so, with all that said, I want us to pray, and then we're going to look into Second Peter chapter 3. Pray with me. Our Lord and God, we come to you, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And you've told us that uh, you've, we can be comforted, that we can comfort others with the comfort with which you've comforted us. And Lord, we've not been where Hal is having the stroke and dealing with his, his eye, uh, his blindness and these and other conditions. And Lord, you've been merciful. He's, thank you, he and Carol have remained joyful. Thank you that you brought Carol through a, a really a difficult time with some uh, uh, evidences of some kind of depression that came upon her an abnormal kind of sadness, and she's, you enabled her to work through that. Thank you for these mercies and for all those people, for Kylie, who's uh, there, the granddaughter, who is, comes as often as she can, and Glenn, uh, Hal and Carol's son, thank you, driving all the way from Cummings here to help his parents. And Lord, these are it's, it's, your, it's your hand through them, Lord. We thank you that we can see that mercy, merciful care from family and friends. And now, Lord, we look to you to give us understanding as we go to this, your word. We need to understand it, help us to concentrate, keep our distractions and mind wandering to a minimum, and that you will give us a greater love for you and renewed diligence in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one more thing. I forgot to mention this. I'm stepping a little bit out on a limb here uh, to, to, to do this, but I understand how I make this. Uh, Hal and Carol are going to need some help, uh, Carol is, in transportation. She wants to be with Hal. He's at the hospital. He may be transferred into a um, uh, stroke recovery place. Uh, I have some guesses where it might be. But anyway, getting to where Hal is to pick Carol up and take her there, working with the family on that, there are some logistics that have to obviously be worked out. But if that possibility walks across your mind and you could help, uh, I'll tell you to see Shirley. Talk to Shirley. And so if, if different ones can help out with that, it really eases the load and uh, all right I'm uh, wanting you now to go with me to 2nd Peter 3 
I am going to read the passage, but I want to I walk you through a couple of thoughts. Is this the end? Uh, we know the end of movies, the credits roll, the end of a book. You understand the concept of the end. Uh, we have a lot of these many ends through life. But I mean, are we in the big one? And some think it is. I recently heard an ex-president explain on a national network how he had to help his daughter deal with her fears about living in what seems to be the end of the world as we know it. He was going through his secularized version of, is this the end? With a lot of uh, political fingerprints all over the answer, but uh, is this the end? Now, there are events and trends which have led to, and this is where the our society is right now to generalize depression, anxiety, and fear, especially among young people. I get that. Think of what young people are being told <laughs> and, that, uh, and what they see on news, and there's such a ready access. I grew up there in World War II. We were oblivious to what was going on, the horrors of going on globally. We were so limited in what we had access to news-wise, but not so now. Globally, Russia, the stalking bear, Ukraine, can they survive? The nation survive. China seems to be licking its chops, looking across the straits there to Taiwan. The Middle East, oh, Hamas and Hezbollah, always hungry to destroy Israel and doing all kinds of uh, evil ways to get at Israel and to bring Israel down. And then nationally, the moral, spiritual, social, and political decline of America. This is not pulpit, pastoral, old man exaggeration. Uh, look, if you know anything about history and the history of our nation, and you have your, your hand on the, the finger on the pulse of what's going on, not living in a bubble. We're in a rapid breakdown of our civilization. I exaggerate not. And then, let's just layer something else on this. Climate change rhetoric in the daily news. Thinking smartly about climate change. That's the title of an article that I have here. Actually, it was a lecture that uh, one of my sources uh, through these recent years been uh, Bjorn, uh, Bjorn Lomborg, thinking smartly about climate change. And in his lecture, this was to the students, I think, at uh, Hillsdale. Uh, here's what a uh, little bit comes out of, listen to this. Uh, the degree of seriousness obviously is obviously important to address, like climate change. If it is true that mankind is facing imminent destruction, we should do everything in our power to deal with it. If the world will end in 12 years, if we don't address climate change, the U.S. represent now, you have to take this source here that he mentions with a grain of salt, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which she claimed in 2019, and uh, she was then justified in demanding that we should spend whatever it takes to prevent that from happening to keep the end 
from happening. Uh, one more comment, uh, lift a, a statement out of this. U.S. Secretary, excuse me, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres and many Western leaders, including the current administration in the U.S., tend towards the end of the world point of view. Quote, the world is facing a grave climate emergency. Every week brings new climate-related uh, devastation, floods, drought, heat waves, wildfires, superstorms. We are in a battle for our lives. Climate change is the biggest threat to the global economy. Now these are claims, this is the uh, UN General Secretary. So you, you hear this, you read it. Some of us read it more than others and listen to it more than others, but the fact is, is this the end? Now, it's not unusual for in history, and having studied and taught church history, for the church to, of course, as events transpire in a society and the church is there, it's not unusual to go through these periods of time where things get calamitous really scary. I can remember well the way it was in the 70s, the coming war with Russia. I mean, by 1982, that was sort of the countdown, it's all gonna be over. So there are periods of time when things do ramp up and get increasingly complicated. All right, I, I don't wanna stay on that, but to alert you to that. I'll also, I read a, an interview, it was with a, a well-known psychiatrist in New York working with Wall Street people, Wall Street, the economists, uh, and hedge funders and that kind of thing. And he had some uh, kind of uh, depressing news. The number of, of the Wall Street personnel um, the stock, uh, what do they call the people that work in the stock market, uh, and stock brokers, you know, all this, but people are handling, handling now, this is not uh, pity any things, people are handing multi-millions of dollars for people, and here's what this psychiatrist is saying, his business, he's had to hire three, two or three others to come and help him in his counseling. And they're coming in and with depression, one of the biggest problems is alcoholism. And these are mostly men. And what person who is investing uh, would like to know that, well, the person who's handling my investments is an alcoholic or on cocaine. So it's, it's, become, it's, a, it's a significant problem. Now this is in one of the, the, the financial institutions, this kind of problem. Now, I'm not trying to scare you and say, well, what do we do? We're going to die. We're going to die. But I am walking toward 2 Peter 3 with, I think, good reason. So now, let's just get our feet in the water of 2 Peter. Now, here's where I, I was working in this passage. that said, oh, I would love to have gone through 2 Peter again. <laughs> but I want to get you up, run up to it. So you with me? Stay with me. We're going to run up to it. Now, what... Peter is doing in this, and uh, David, you must have been anticipating something in Second Peter, because I heard what you, you were saying in the song that we have firm a foundation and so forth, that what Peter is doing in this epistle, 
It's written, oh, about 68 A.D., not long before he was martyred. And that he is working with the church to develop a defensive perimeter against false teaching. I mean, this is really a heavy-hitting book, heavy-hitting book. And he takes the gloves off and going after false teachers like no other book in the Bible. And so dealing with these false teachers. And his, the, the churches to whom he's writing, they were surrounded by problems and the perplexities of the end time. Guess what? They thought they were in the end time. <laughs> that was over 20, 2,100 years ago. They thought they were. Fresh, freshly, I mean, this is generational speaking. These were people who had contact with those who were with Jesus as Peter did. So he heard Jesus, saw him. So anyway, the flow of thought in this epistle goes like this. I'll be brief. I'm not going to labor every chapter, but this is important. The very first thing that happens in 2 Peter, only three chapters, is that believers in the first verses are church. Go on in the grace of God. The scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. Move on, move on, grow. Don't stand still. Don't run away. It's a full-throated attack on false teachers. I will alert you to the fact, though, I studied this passage again this week. 1 Peter 3, 9, which is the kind of the door handle for opening up the room of verses 10 through 13, where it says, God is not willing that any should perish. And oh, to the Arminians and the Calvinists fight over that one. And I've got a little mini sermon sitting on a shelf over here in my brain, but I'm saying to it, you can't preach that now, we don't have time. I will just put it this way, that I think the key thing in that verse is that God's desire within his decreed work, he has a decree will and he has a desired will. And this desired will, desired will fits in the decree. It's not that God is just saying, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I want as many people as possible to believe, you know. After all, I've, uh, I won't know who it is until they do it, or I see them believing, and then I, uh, that kind of thought. But I will tell you this, that both Armenians who think that this is saying God's waiting till every possible person could uh, be saved, or the Calvinists say he's waiting for the elect, the full number of the elect to be saved. Um, both of those views have problems. And all right, let's get on, get on from that and go to this. What the apostle does, the apostle Peter, what he does is that he moves along in the second chapter and he describes the false teachers. I um, mean, it, it's a barroom fight and he's the one who's throwing all the heavy punches. And a warning against these deceptions. Don't fall for it. Don't get fooled. Don't panic. Don't fear. And then finally, he gets back into chapter 3, comes back full cycle in a sense, and says, we're to live the faith-driven life in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Now, just steady as she goes. Don't panic. Don't fear. And he walks through the promise of his coming, the patience of God, and then the end of the world as we know it. Uh, 
you're saying, some of you who know the music world, you know where, what's kind of going on in my mind there. But uh, I want to now read to you the passage. Here's the reading. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to read it from two different translations. It's not a long passage. But I'm going to make some comments, and you're going to think, well, that's the sermon. No, it isn't. I want to make kind of a little sermonette out of the passage because I want to be sure we're covering some of the details in these verses that I'll come back to in different ways as we, as we walk through it. And the two, I see the two assertions that Peter makes in these verses as he's coming to the conclusion of his epistle. All right, let's follow with me now as I read it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Right? right on the heels, God is not willing that it should perish. But in the meantime, there is coming a time of divine intervention. I'm going to talk about this day of the Lord. That's big, really big in eschatology, in Bible prophecy. We'll come back to it. But it's the divine intervention, two words for right now. It will come like a thief going to be surprised, unexpected. For whom? It'll be this way for the world, the unbelieving world. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. I love this word, roar. It's a, what is called an onomatopoetic word. And the word, listen, I'm going to pronounce it and you'll say, oh yeah, the word is roarzadon. Then it sounds like it, doesn't it? Rorzadon. It's used in places outside. It's the only place it's used is here in Scripture. And it's but used of the crackling of a fire, the hissing of a serpent, um, thunder, something like that. So he says, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies, will be burned up and dissolved. Well, this... Okay, I'm, I'm going to comment on that, but I, I got to get the rest of the sentence. And the earth and the works, the works done by men that are done on it, will be exposed. They will be stripped before God. Nothing will escape God's notice, and nothing will escape accountability to Him. And unbelievers face the great white throne judgment seat at the very end. The books will be open. Everyone who is without faith in Jesus Christ has a, the most startling, sad, conclusive issue, experience in their entire lives for all eternity. And they will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Now, we were dissolved. It's a little world that every Greek word, every Greek student knows about because when you start out learning Greek, you learn the verb paradigm. Luo, luais, luain, luamen, luati, luusi, lueti. Luusi. It means to loose. Luo, to loose, is what he's trying, is describing here. It's going to be unloosed. How so? And since all these things then are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, love this word, waiting for. 
The waiting for here is a word that means literally, it's a compound word in the original, means to think towards something, to think, think. It's not just an emotional um, anxiety attack. No, this is anticipating with thought, knowing that to be true. It embodies expectation, anticipation. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now we're going to look at this hastening idea a little more later on. Um, this presents a little, on the surface of it, a bit of a challenge. So is God sort of waiting? Uh, okay, I guess I'll come. Uh, look, they're really doing a, a great work for me. I guess I'll, uh, God's not in the driver's seat. He's sovereign. Back to that later. So hastening the coming of the day of God. I take this to be a way of speaking directly to the deity of Christ, using God in the day of Christ, it's the day of the Lord, he's speaking at the same time, that divine intervention. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, now, I want to say four things very briefly here. It's not your notes, but I want to say four things about this passage. They're important to give you a frame for it and what we're going to do with these two assertions that uh, Peter is going to give us, four things. First of all, sin and its curse has marred God's world, the total environment. So you're wondering, why is it all going to be completely, well, depending on how you, you view this, is he referring to annihilation or purification? There are two different interpretations on this burning up. Annihilation of everything, earth, moon, sun, stars, all these things. Or is he referring to, in the use of the word fire, being a purifying uh, experience for what sin has polluted? So that's the idea. So that the fact is, with that this orderly arrangement has been deteriorating slowly since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and disobeyed God. It's been the, it's the law of entropy. It's been winding down. It's dying. Just the opposite of evolution. Insert here. You know why evolution is so popular? One of the reasons. Because it seems on the surface to, to assuage the, or to deal with the fear of is it really, is it going to end with God holding us accountable? And we're, you mean we're not getting better and better and growing and progressive and that we can't establish a utopia on this planet as many want to do? No. And the evolution in 1859 with the origin of the species and Charles Darwin came along. Oh, we've got, we've got a temple to which we can go and worship and explain the existence of all things through evolution. Many sermon over back to the passage, air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, um, garbage, trash, those things. Are, we don't enjoy seeing those things, but it's what humans are doing to their own planet, to their own environment. That's the first thing. Secondly, that the disintegration process will be speeded up and completed in a great dissolving. It's going, to be, it's going to speed up. You get down to the day of the Lord, it's going to fast forward. Three, but not an annihilation, 
For God doesn't uncreate what he's created. I'm not into the annihilation school of thought on this passage. I'm more leaning more toward the purification. As by fire, God purifies his creation. So that's the basic principle of the conservation of mass and energy is dealt with. And then four, the new heavens and the new earth will no longer harbor any remnants of sin and its effect. There's a great day coming. And if you want to really get your battery charged on this, just read Andy, uh, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. He deals with this in other passages like this. And what we have to expect in the coming of heaven. All right. With that said, now I'm going to read one other translation. I'm going to read the New English translation of this passage without comment. So follow with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When he comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise. And the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. And the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. Since all these things are to melt away in this, in this manner, what sort of people must you be conducting your lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolved and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness truly resides. Now, let's go to these two assertions that Peter makes. He's going to do two things. It's very simple. It's what he does. The end of the world, the very first one, number one, is that the end of the world as we know it looms on the horizon. And in the in this language of Scripture, it's imminent. It could be at any time. God knows the schedule. We don't. And it's described as the day of the Lord. This is huge. I want to walk you through it. What is this day of the Lord? It appears 19 times in the Old Testament. I've been through every book where it occurs. And I was tempted to <laughs> go fishing in those books. But just to know this, 19 times in the Old Testament. It occurs four times in the New Testament. I think I've listed them before you there. What is this day of the Lord? When you first read scripture and you come to this term, you get a little bit, um, uh, you could get confused because here's what you see. You see that the day of the Lord is used to describe some local situations which are catastrophic. But for example, Joel, the book of Joel. Remember the locust plague? And Joel used the locust plague, and by the time he gets through with it, like, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, the world's going to come to an end. And he started out with a localized locust plague. And he calls it the day of the Lord. Keep that in mind. And you're going to find this in some other Old Testament passages, which we're not going to, in Obadiah, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, full of it, Isaiah, Zephaniah, what is it? All right, I'm going to tee the ball up for a moment. I'm just going to tell you what, where it's mentioned, and then I'm going to come back and put it together. All right, this day of the Lord is used to describe certainly localized, imminent catastrophes that were said to about to occur and did occur. Because God says, 
All right, I'm intervening. Enough is enough. Here I come in judgment. It was sometimes it would incorporate judgment on Israel because of her apostasy, and in the wider circle on the nations around Israel, whether it's Assyria or Babylon, Syria, Egypt, and he dealt with those, and those were called, we could call them little days of the Lord. However, here is what the Bible student begins to notice. Believe me, I labored over this when I first started working, and prophecy was one of my hobbies, and I started looking, and I said, wait a minute, what he's talking about in Joel and in Amos and other places in the Old Testament, whoa, the language just, it just overflows its banks in magnitude because he talks about all the nations and you get the impression he's talking about the end of the world. And guess what? He is. That's the way prophecy function, functions in the Old Testament. You get the little days of the Lord, but then those anticipate and foreshadow the big one that's to come, the big one. And it's a little bit like this battle scene in the Pacific in World War II, that you have these island conflicts as the Marines went over the, the, in, the, in, the, in the Pacific while the battles were going on over in Europe. This was just to try to deal with the empire of China or with Japan. And so you had to do, island. my dad was on those islands, Guam, Kwajalein, Saipan. Oh, God was merciful to my father. He survived them. It was awful. But you know what was coming? It looked like they were going to have to invade Japan. And what made the difference? They were prepared. They had ships. They were expecting to lose a million men if they had to invade Japan, at least a million. And then the atomic bomb, July the 6th, 1945, in the deserts of New Mexico, they didn't know it, but they thought the world was, are we getting ready to blow the world up when you split the atom? Okay, I've gotten into the passage here on that statement, but come back to it. This day of the Lord. So here it is. The day of the Lord is an idiom, and it's used to emphasize swift and decisive nature of God's victory over his enemies. On any given occasion, it can be what we would call little or near days of the Lord or the big event, the cataclysmic one. So near and little, near and far, and a future eschatological day of the Lord, which is associated with a second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's your little mini hermeneutics class on this and understanding it. When you read it, you'll, I hope that will help you to get hold of it. Now, I'm not going to go through the four passages in the New Testament, only to say this. They are pertinent, but I think you'll see them converge on what we're going to do in 2 Peter 3. Peter quotes the passage in Joel 2:28 through 32. He quotes it in his sermon on uh, the day of Pentecost. And the day of the Lord is, that's the context. But what he was doing was quoting that and saying, here, this, what you see happening at Pentecost, the speaking in tongues, the extraordinary things that were taking place, this was one of those events which anticipates something greater to come. This is like the beginning of the end. And then it's used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. 
Again, it's going to come like a thief in the night. It will come without warning. And it's associated with the rapture of the church. And then you have 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. The day of the Lord begins. We can get a little bit more specific. It begins sometime after the rapture of the church. And these major events, though they don't come immediately, but they will come. And then the emergence of the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. And then 2 Peter chapter 3. All right, I can summarize the day of the Lord this way. Here's what it would do. This is critical uh, to what the readers would have, I think, have understood and what we need to know about it. The day of the Lord will be a surprise to the spiritually blind. Be caught completely off guard. They will be caught up in their progressivism in making this planet, you know, the, 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 the new Eden, if they even, you know, give any nod to Eden at all. And the time of Christ's coming, it cannot be calculated and we should not try to set dates. And here, you've got to watch out for some Christians, some pastors and theologians, some, some of them, write books, get on this. We can show you the time is coming. And they can, some of them get into numerology and tell you what well, these Hebrew letters, they have numbers they represent and start playing those games with scripture. All right, just remember, it's going to be a surprise to the unbelieving world. Also, the day of the Lord will prove to be a disaster for the unprepared. Like the burglar coming during the night. I, I'm not particularly fearful of that, but I will tell you, it does cross my mind when I go around and make sure all the doors are locked at night. <laughs> because I hear stories, home invasions, that sort of thing. Horrific thought. The day of the Lord will bring a bab the baptism of fire. Do you know about this one? This is what... John the Baptist announced in Matthew 3.11, the Messiah coming, and there will come this baptism of fire. Baptism of fire? What is it? Well, here's how it unfolds. It's, it's big. The baptism of fire is going, going to come at the coming of Christ, Matthew 3.11. It is compared to the judgment of the flood in Matthew 24, 37-41, this baptism of fire. The baptism of fire, it's taught in the parables. <clears throat> The wheat and the tares, the good and the bad fish, the ten virgins, the sheep, the goats, the talents. It's there. There is coming a reckoning day. Jesus taught it left and right every day. The baptism of fire is taught in Ezekiel 20, 32 through, 34, through 38. I will enter into judgment with you face to face, speaking to Israel. <coughs> and then the baptism of fire is climaxed by the burning of the heavens and the earth. I took this, um, give credit to whom credit's due. I have a little study Bible. I got a lot of them. One of them is called the Defender's Bible. You familiar with that one? It's uh, Henry Morris was behind this and, and bringing the, his theological uh, worldview, mindset to, to especially passages that deal with uh, you know, the beginning and science and the Bible. And he said this with regard to this. A vast explosion... A, excuse me, a vast explosive disintegration involving transformation of the chemical energy of the elements into heat, light, and sound energy. And so at this time, this day of the Lord, the curtain is going to come down on the reign of human rebellion against God, and it will be the end of human rebellion in a fist in God's face. And God says, all right, here I am. 
and you answer to me, that's where it's going. And everything's going to be exposed. Ungodly works of the unbelieving world are going to be clearly put out there. Folks, don't you just find something in your heart and say, this man who stalked, who killed those 11, 12 women, these other serial killers, mass shootings, fraud, evil, you, how do you even begin to measure it all? It's, it's, is, there, is there any justice? Is there any justice? God says, I'm going to come and deal with it. Oh, but we have, we have pundits, we have philosophers, we have university professors, we have people who write very uh, verbosely in books and tell us, oh, we can see this better world coming. It will come. Oh, if we can just get to green energy. We can just get there and do away with fossil fuels. If we can just, just give us government more control and we will bring it to pass. God say, an end to all that. He comes. That's the day of the Lord. Now there's a second assertion here and this is where Peter gets right down to uh, where the rubber meets the road. All right, so what? You, you sit there and think, okay, it's coming. It's gonna, there's gonna be a huge explosion. Will it be a, a t like atomic fusion? Um, and will it be that? Atomic fission, blowing up, splitting the atom, when protons, neutrons, electrons, when things just boom, blow apart. Well, all right, let's look at it this way. The end of the world, as we know it, demands a special kind of outlook on life. Do you have it? Do you have it? Do you want it? Are you living it? That's to us. Let's consider it. Our hope in Christ's return should stimulate transformed hearts and lives. That's what it ought to do for us. Not to just panic. No, don't go into anxiety about it. Don't go into depression. Oh, I know. It's hard, and I think of young people having to grow up in the climate which the, my generation, well, we had, well, we had to go out in the hall in case there was going to be a bomb that was dropped. You know, we were in the, in the days of the Cold War, and there were those, but as kids, I, I can tell you this, having been one of them, I was born in 41, we really weren't, I wasn't worried about it all that much. I thought, till my dad was in the Marines, we took care of everything in World War II, we can take care of this. Uh, maybe I was a bit naive, and you know how teenagers are anyway. Let's go to school the next day and have a good time. And, but here it is. Here it is upon us. Not to fret, not to worry, not to panic, not to fall into fear, not to make rash decisions, not to do foolish things, not to get distracted, not have nervous breakdowns, but Here's what Bible prophecy should do to us. Let's think about Bible prophecy a bit. Bible prophecy is not just for human curiosity. The New Testament is filled with how should we then live. That's what it's about. You can get people to come out to a prophecy conference. I've lived through them. I've seen them. And they're good. That's what whetted my appetite when I was a teenager. I wanted to know more about this. I was 15, I got into a study of 1 Peter. More, more, and more, and our church had prophecy conferences. But be careful, be careful. 
That's what I'm trying to say. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You got that? That ought to be a pick-me-up. 2 Timothy 4, 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. All right, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. Don't panic. Anti-Christian worldviews, they come, they go. They come and dressed in different clothes, different philosophical clothes. They can huff and they can puff to blow down the house of biblical truth. But they can't. The Bible keeps on, keeps on speaking truth. That's why the world hates it, hates it. Calls us extremists extremists. Let the evolutionist taunt the me- his meaningless existence. An emperor has no clothes as evolution. No meaning. Evolution? No meaning. You're roadkill. Face it, if you believe it. Wrapped in the language of the Enlightenment. Oh, there's some very, very uh, sophisticated language that's used. The Christian must live out the truth of the second coming. That's what makes the difference. The coming destruction of the world is not to drive the Christian inward. That's the danger. And there is a kind of Christianity that can just fold in on selfism, on individualism, focusing on feeling good. Therapy by, you know, educating your emotions thinking only of oneself, caring little about the state of the world, the miserable human condition, corruption in politics and crime, and just get into a little pietistic bubble. But we must, be, we must beware of another flawed response to the destruction, the coming destruction of the world. Namely, the philosophy that we are here to save the world, save the environment, bring in the kingdom. That's really caught on. It has. And a younger generation, we're told now, young people, all the news, the media lie to us all the time. They say, listen, Christians, the reason you've got empty seats is because all the young people, they've, they've, you've, they've smoked you out. They know who you are. You're not fooling them anymore. They're wise. They know what's coming. Oh, no, they don't. No. And so we can save the world. Let's march for social justice. Now, the Bible speaks to justice. Just use the word justice. Don't put the adjective out in front of it. That creates all kinds of problems. Justice, justice. Oh, there's a lot to say about justice. Can't stay there. All right, the world is not going to last. A new world is going to take its place. So how then should we live? Well, we're told not to love the world. We're told that we're not to love the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride, boastful pride of life. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. I'll make a suggestion at this point. I'm just trying to expose a little bit the way the world tries to have us detour and get distracted from the fact that the day of the Lord is coming. Let's take a field trip. Maybe we could set one up this week. We could try to do it all in one day. Would you like to go? Here's where we'll do. First of all, the first thing we'll do is we'll visit the junkyard. 
Uh, they're around, uh, you know, they're kind of coy about it. Sometimes they're behind a lot of Leland Cypress trees, you know, and what's, what's over there and there, behind big fences, and you see hundreds and hundreds of what had been people's dreams, junk cars. Okay, then uh, what we can do is this, after that, we can go to a uh, court. Would you like to go to court? Just sit in a day in court. Right in Fayette County. I mean, I've been in kind of unwillingly at times, not because I had to show in court, because people I was concerned about were in there. You sit through a courtroom for a few hours. It's dismal. Dismal. What is wrong with the human race? And then, to top it all off, we'll go to the sanitary landfill. Oh, it smells so good. And you just look and watch, you go over there and drive into the hangar, whatever that thing is, back in there and wade through the slosh and take out things from your own vehicle that well, this wouldn't go on a yard sale. And you put it in there and you look at the stuff that's in there. You know, now that would be an interesting field trip, wouldn't it? I would hope they would give us a little clarification on what's going to last and what doesn't. And here's what we're told to do getting right to the passage. What we are do, told to do is for whole, live holiness and godliness. Now, that's just huge. This is some heavy lifting here. But let's try, to, let's try to condense it. Holiness. To be like God. Be holy for I am holy. That means when we come to Christ, we've got new desires. There ought to be a change going on in my character. I'm not the same ornery, short-tempered, uh, unkind, self-centered kind of person. God's doing something in my life. Character change. That's holiness. And then there, is, uh, uh, there are other people. You know, I, I really need to be investing some time and effort in ministering to other people and through the gifts and whatever God, re, the resources God's given me. I, I really need, this world's not all about me. What about other folks? Their needs, the needs for the gospel, their broken hearts, lives that are just blown apart, families just exploded, all these kinds of terrible things. What about other people? It's holiness and gives us that thought they need Christ and how can he show up? And then, and then what about my money? Can invest in eternity. Oh, well, if you got stocks, hey, they're not doing so well right now. It's, it's every, every month. Dow Jones, so what? what's going to best place to invest money over the long haul is that you're mindful that you should be investing in a consistent way in God's work, in missions, in God's people. And then he also says godliness here. What's the relationship? They're overlapping circles. I'll put it this way. Godliness means that God is at the very center of one's life. We center on him. Now, if you want to do it this way, can you, uh, geometry class, just a little simple geometric design here. Think of a circle. And right in the middle of the circle, God. Capital letters, God. Then, next circle out, self. One self. And then, outside in the perimeter, you've got five areas. You've got the world, just functioning in the world, in society, family, work, government, and church. Well, here's what godliness is. 
Everything is centered on God. And it's simultaneous. It's not this whole idea, well, got to have God first. Got to have others second. Yourself last. What do they say? Oh, that's joy. Remember that little trite thing we learned? It doesn't work. How do you know that? So how do you know that you're second? How do you know that you're third? Or how, how do you know God's first? The best thing to do, see it this way, is that you relate his truth to every aspect of your person. That's the self circle in there. Every aspect of your own self. That's not unholy. And then simultaneously you have responsibilities in all these areas. Not sequentially, but simultaneously. In all these areas, that's the way it goes out. Not in a hierarchy of, of values, but in that way in which truth shows up in government, church, world, family. I'd like to stay there, but I hope, talk about it, think about it, pray about it. But look at this in verse 12. Our hope in Christ's return can help bring on the day of the Lord. How so? I think what he's saying here is that as we think toward the coming of the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ, when he set all things right, that what we do is within the decree of God for his coming. God knows the time that he's coming. He's not, we're not twisting his arm and saying, okay, all right, am I doing enough? I'll make it happen. No. God has it decreed, but he has determined that our desires, our prayer, our witnessing, our giving, holiness of life, that's doing things. That's making things happening, changing people's lives. The gospel is spreading. We get missionaries out in places where they've not been before. We sustain them there. We encourage them there. All these good things. We help people who are in deprivation, people who can't pay their rent, who need help, know how to handle their money, and, and such things. This society falls apart, marriages that are breaking up. We do this kind of thing. So here it is then, we do this with expectation, anticipation, and as we do it, God has ordained it that it will bring about, it's like, it's like this. It's like when you go to work and you know you gotta be there all day long. But what a difference it makes when you are really doing the things that you know are meaningful and you're enjoying that day, rather than just, oh my goodness, not even lunchtime. And no. It's that how the time goes by. I had a little experience like that. I've not always been a preacher. I know what it is to do really, really gargantuan, boring things. <laughs> like putting labels on paint cans by the hundreds. <laughs> so, driving a semi-truck. and all. But you know, if you've got a worldview, if you see Christ is coming, what I'm doing is making a difference for Christ. And I want to do it joyfully and be aware of my environment and bear witness to him and so live that those around me can see Christ and hasten his coming. All right, so may it be, so may it be. And then let's get verse 13 and I want to tie this up. That our hope in Christ's return anticipates a coming world where sin will not well dwell. Bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. The world will come, the world to come will be redeemed creation. The curse is going to be lifted. No curse in nature, no curse on the body, its effect on the soul and the heart and the conscience. I will be a new creature in that new creative order when I am in the presence of Christ. 
I won't have to deal with thoughts that are just so crazy and contrary to everything God wants me to do. Of course, you don't have those thoughts, so you, you're good. Uh, why am I thinking this way? Why am I behaving this way? Oh, Lord, just give me the grace to exemplify that day to come so that you will get the glory now in the present that I've trusted you through the most horrific, difficult situations so that there will be due reward. I want to conclude with this. All right, I want to go take it down to a real family, church. I'm going to do a little prognosticating here. I'm not the pastor. I'm, I'm, I'm a guest. I'm filling in. Love to do it. So don't know how long I'll have, but with what time I have, I think I'd like to say to all of us this. I'll say three things. Three things. One, stay on task, Baraka. Let's stay on task. What is task? The Great Commission. That we've got work to do. I saw it happen this week in this five-day club. There were those who came up here from 10 to 12 every day, and they had about 25, 30 young people. It dawned on me as I walked in and looked at those little kids. I said, you know what? In about 12 years, they're going to be young men, young women. 12 years. Young men, young women. That quickly. You know, parents, you understand that. <laughs> it happens. And so there is, and missions. Oh, oh, missions. We need help on the missions team. Oh, Mike, Laura, thank you. But somebody come alongside. So I, I don't know this much about missions, but I want to educate myself. Here I am. What can I do? Oh, do we need to muscle up the missions team and begin to work to, it's not just being on a committee. I'm not, it's not com committeeism. It's, it's ways in which you can get and thought and ferment thoughts and think of ways to a new, we got missionaries that are, some of them are ready to retire. How are we going to get involved in missions or continue to be in extraordinary ways? So stay on task. Stay on task. And then secondly, stay alert. Don't go to sleep at the wheel. Don't be deceived. Don't get sucked into. Look, folks, there are two worldviews. There are only two, really. There is the view that sees what? Creation, the fall, and restoration. Redemption. You see it? That's it. And the other is, we can do it ourselves. Man-centeredness. You get it, you can cut it all different ways. When you watch the news, when you see people prognosticating, giving their opinions about this, that, and the other, your worldview. So don't be deceived. Don't get sucked into something that's going to pull you off into the wrong direction. And thirdly, stay hopeful. Stay hopeful through suffering. Don't live fear-driven. Don't let it take over. I know it's a battle. And nobody likes to hear the diagnosis with, with the word that begins with C. Cancer. I've seen what it does. You have too. It's painful. It's miserable. It hurts. And there's grief to deal with. But oh, to keep our thoughts and heart set, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that whatever he calls, however, whatever bridge he wants me to cross over into his presence, Lord, so help me. Oh, don't let my imagination go crazy and become fertile ground for a lack of faith and just be fearful. No, 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 no. Don't indulge in fearful thought. Think, Lord, how can I serve you? Well, 
this chemo is just giving me diarrhea. I, 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 I don't like this. You know, whatever it might be, this stroke that just can't move. You have to have five people to pick you up in a bed, out of bed, and put you in a chair. Lord, I love you. I don't doubt you. And there will be an understanding of these things much, much better. This is why Peter said these two things. The world as we know it is coming to an end. And it will be the day of the Lord. It's coming. Secondly, there is a way we should then be living so as to make clear to the world our credibility in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of your word, the hope that you give in Christ. Now, Lord, buoy us and lift us up with renewed energy and zeal for you, even in these lazy, hazy days of summer, that we'll not get slack, but, Lord, ways in which you want to use our gifts and service to you for Christ's sake. Amen.